What's in a meal? To some, it's simply nourishment, a salad, a bowl of soup, a calorie-measured daily objective to match the day's activities. To others, it's an activity, a burger, fries, maybe even a chicken sandwich. But for two idiots who chose to drive across the country in an Acura MDX on Continental tires, it's a way of life. They visit restaurants like Folk Art, The North Turn, Tegri Bisto, and if John Taglis had his way, Chili's. It's a journey from metropolis to farming town, desert to mountains, and including vistas like Winslow, Arizona, College Corner, Ohio, and of course, Bedford, Pennsylvania. They've met names like Fran Keaty, Andretti, Stewart, Ryan Lewis, heralding a fan following that follows cult status in a folklore that ranges from a work at the mill to wondering what happened to episode 19. This is Dinner with Racers, with me. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire, with your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio Welcome to yet another episode of Dinner with Racers. I am Sean Heckman. I am Ryan Eversley. And uh, as you know, we are on Amazon Prime with a television series with the same name, and we put out a bunch of podcasts kind of supporting that. But while we were doing all that, we were on a six-month, 15,000-mile journey, and we said, you know what, let's just go ahead and record some regular podcasts the way you know them. Uh, while we're out doing all this stuff. So uh, we recorded some here, we recorded some there. And uh, back in July, when we were out in the Connecticut area for some racing and then also some video work, uh, we said, you know what, let's see who's out in the Connecticut area and let's get some really, really cool interviews. So when it comes to famous racing personas out near the Lime Rock area, uh, one of the most famous ones is, of course, Sam Posey. Sam's a longtime road racing staple of the community he drove for penske in the trans am series and we're talking when it was the trans am series of the og day he was teammates with mark donahue and the famous sunoco camaros like just talk about amazing stuff was able to race a bunch of times at lamar sebring daytona and later in life became much more known for his writing and for his vocal intros to several different types of motorsports throughout the years so a lot of people that are sort of of our generation or, or later uh, would know Sam as being a veteran television commentator. If you listen to our Bobby Unser episode, you'll hear a lot of stories about Sam as told by Bobby. Uh, so this is very much Sam's opportunity to tell his own story. And we're glad we were able to, to capture it. So on National Take Your Cat to Work Day, we headed sure. over Yeah, <laughs> we headed over to J.P. Gifford Cafe in Sharon, Connecticut, picked up a bunch of sandwiches, some chips and drinks, and then we drove out to Sam's farm and we had lunch with him in his art studio, which was just covered in works of art. And it was really, it was really kind of a neat eye-opening experience to be able to see all the things that he works on, as well as sit down with a legend and just eat chips and, and sandwiches with him. So some of the things you're going to hear about in this episode, uh, warships and also the female form, two of his favorite things that came up quite often. Uh, he's more than happy to pick our writing apart. Uh, halfway through the episode, he decided to tell us about sending kids to the mill. 
And it is important in this episode to note something. Uh, Sam is in a fairly developed form of Parkinson's disease, so he does struggle a little bit with uh, some of his wording and speaking. Um, because of that, we had to edit this one a little bit special, so you might hear what sounds like Ryan and I interrupting. Uh, that is, in fact, maybe not what's actually happening. It was just sort of a clean way to edit this this recording together because of some of the challenges that, that Sam faced when he was speaking. So uh, this one may sound a little different than you're used to uh, because of the fact he is so far along in his, in his Parkinson's. So fortunately, our DWR legal counsel, Mr. Michael Avenatti, was nice enough to drive us over to Sharon, Connecticut for lunch with Sam. I'm Michael Avenatti reminding you to get out there and vote. And of course, uh, to get to his home, uh, we had uh, what kind of vehicle? That'd be my Acura MDX. And adorned on this Acura was what kind of tires? Continental tire. Oh, hey, Sam Posey. Meow. Feels good. I can hear myself. That feels bad. <laughs> uh, can you hear Ryan and I okay? Yes, very well. Great. Right. Perfect. So we've um, we've done lunches and dinners in people's homes. We've done cookouts in the backyard. We've done a million restaurants. Yeah. I think sitting in somebody's art studio is a first for us. Mm-hmm. So uh, and and. Uh, the way Alan was putting it was uh, we you started when, when you guys moved out here, you started with the design center or the art studio, and then you worked your way into making a garage in the house. Well, that's not quite right. Um, the sequence was um, we bought a house down the road, about a mile down the road, and it had a, 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 a studio, I mean, a, a stables. Uh, and we converted that into the studios of Powell Powell Barn, and it was our first studio, really, and it was a, a great experience to have. And we liked that basic layout, which was a big room for Ellen and a big room for me, connected by um, uh, the stereo and uh, snack bar kind of situation. Okay, good. So then, which is a great basis to start a studio with, because... You, it's so foreign to most people that they don't know really what to ask for. And right. so we did know what to ask for. And um, when we decided to move up here to this house, um, we uh, we knew exactly what we wanted. And I say that because we were here over 20 years before I, before I decided to build an addition to it, which you can see from where we're sitting now, makes the studio L-shaped. And um, I had a sort of a lot of theories came to came to light, and chiefly among them was the idea of taking all of the regular furniture items and having them hug the walls, so the space in the middle is completely open. And I have my easel and the supporting equipment, and I can move it around with one hand. And uh, so, if I for some reason want to have a little bit. Over here, I can have it a little over here. And it's worked out fantastically. We're so happy with it. Uh, we grafted on this thing we call the uh, dock. I don't know if you can see it from there, yeah, but yeah, it uh, sticks out inside. about 60 feet into the uh, forest. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. In the morning, the sunlight hits 
one set of leaves and in the afternoon and evening it hits another set of leaves and the whole thing just comes alive. And if it's windy, you just can't believe what it's like to stand down there because your whole life is circling around and bumping up and down. And right. It's just a wonderful experience. We're very lucky to have it. It's a beautiful piece of property you guys have. This whole oh, area yeah. is gorgeous. Now, this, this is amazing. Uh, my grandfather bought some land up here because he didn't like the society of the Hamptons. Then my mother took, overtook that sort of idea, and we had a farm, and she basically expanded it, buying contiguous pieces of land. Sure. Um, until we have quite a significant thing, which... Uh, so you mentioned your grandfather earlier. Um, so Sam Posey, the racing driver, Sam Posey, the TV analyst, even Sam Posey, the artist, yeah. is fairly known, but there's not a lot out there about you know, your childhood and kind of where you grew up and, and your family before that. So if, if you wouldn't mind uh, indulging us for a few minutes, like I really don't know anything about the Posey family and, and your original upbringing. The early days. Well, that's a big question. Um, it deserves a, a short answer. I think. <laughs> um, my mother married a young man who was at Harvard at the time, and his grades weren't too good. He slipped out of the University of Pennsylvania. But he was much loved and um, much missed when he went into the war and was killed uh, at uh, Okinawa. Wow. Oh, wow. The okay. classic kamikaze. Straight into the bridge. Bam. Wow. 35 people killed. Yeah. yeah. So my mom spent about 10 years without a husband. And those 10 years were the fundamental parts of my life because she was a mother and a father too. And uh, it was a great thrill to have her enthusiasm right. for things that I grew to like. Uh, I mean, what did I know at first? But so, so to be clear, this was also your father. The, so this was your this dad. This was your father. Because you mentioned that he, she married a man, but it wasn't clear it was your father. Yes. That was, that was yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He became my father. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but my mom, um, we had a house in New York on 72nd Street, and we had this place in the country, and my mom hated the city and loved the country, and so gradually we moved bit by bit up here and uh, left New York behind us. So we still have a small apartment there for my brothers and myself to, uh, uh, to experience the city. My mom said, you know, I think it's wrong to have kids coming up who don't know New York. It's, it's there, and it should be... <laughs> part of life. So anyhow, then I became infatuated with car racing about 1955. I went to the Rhode Island School of Design, spending as much time as I could in the art room and winning this exhibition, uh, which was a kind of big deal because, you know, when you're that age, you're susceptible to all sorts of influences. Right. And um, in my case, the passion for racing began to show through. And I went to RISD, and basically it was four years of vacation because I loved art. And RISD offered every kind of art, you know, ceramics and sculpture and figure drawing, which I fell in love with. And just a number of great things that happened there. Uh, but it overlapped my the start of my racing career. I arranged to have my friends cooperate in a scheme which... Um, 
consisted of my making four or five paintings, not finishing any one of them. Mm -hmm. And my friends, when the teacher came by and said, where's Sam? Oh, he was here just a moment ago. Right. And I was in Daytona racing. (laughs) 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 Actually, I made the first Daytona 24-hour race down there, which was fantastic. Great piece of history to be part of. Um, So, all right, so now um, I'm shifting gears into racing. But I had an almost unique situation, which is uh, you couldn't race until you were 21 in those days. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, held a lot of us back, way back. Right. You, know, you see the Rodriguez brothers at yeah. 13 and 15 racing at Sebring, you know. Right. Barely touched the pedals. It's hard to put it this way. I had talent, sort of all I can say about it. That, yeah. that explains. talent and modesty. <laughs> and modesty. Good looks. I was known as Mr. Mr. Motormouth. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not an a- inaccurate appellation. <laughs> <laughs> but the racing went as racing would with highlights of bad th- things happening. Right. I was almost killed at Lamarck when I went over and through some trees. And Was it on the San Jose Strait? No, that Sam Posey Strait hadn't been named yet. Uh, about to say, it's like that if name. it had been, everything would have been fine. Yeah. No one can, should have uh, seen that coming. We're trying to raise money for uh, the toll booths for the bottom of the hill, so you come down and you have to pay for the next lap. We haven't found the capital for this. Right. If you, sure. if you well. see anything, you'd like to do it yourself. Uh, we're, we're open to... Uh, Don't give us bad ideas. I was going to we'll say, we'll yeah. just start that right now. <laughs> so I was in the first Can-Am, mm-hmm. which was um, 1966 okay. at Mossport. Yeah. And uh, that was a start for my really professional part of my career. Right. I mean, it's not bad when you're 14 months into your racing career, you're in the Can-Am. Yeah. Um, if, yeah. If you don't mind me interrupting, that was one of the things I was curious about when you look up your bio, because basically your career starts at like awesome in Trans Am and Can Am, running against like with Mark Donahue as your teammate. Right. I'm like, wait, was there like a few years of club racing or or driving school, or did you just sort of jump right in? And like, how do you get that? Well, I did a couple of club races and won them both. And okay. So mm-hmm. that you won was, both. Yeah. So you did two club races. <laughs> yeah. Now you're ready for the national yeah, scene. Yeah, time to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've, those are the good ones I remember. I certainly had some bad ones. In <laughs> but um, but the, on the whole, it looked promising. So you, yeah, the, you're two for two if no one's checking. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, gotcha. And um, <laughs> the, the, um, the Can-Am was something very special. And to have been part of it um, was amazing. And it came about in the following way. John Fitch, I'm sure you were up to speed on him, mm-hmm. right? a great racer, and so, sort of took me under his wing. And he had some wonderful advice at just the right moments. I, I tended to you know, go off the road a great deal in those days. And he said, Sam, you know, the racing takes place on the black stuff, not the green stuff. I I took that to heart Um, anyway John arranged for me to have a ride at Le Mans if you can imagine this less than a year into racing so you've done you're two for two on your club races (laughs) as long as we're not checking and then you you get a ride driving a Beat Serini which uh, 
broke down after a little while, but still had been a great, great thing. And I look back now and I see what I was really getting in for. I mean, the, the track was so dangerous in those days. I, right. My car didn't have any seat belts. Right. Uh, and uh, it was prepared by, by a group of college students who was studying with Giotto Bissarini, who was an engineer and right. a, a wonderful man. And the car just didn't really have the, the kind of horsepower to weight ratio you, you're looking for. So you, you, this is your first ever Le Mans, and you're already complaining that it's the car. Well, it, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the, the it was just a sound car for, um, for Le Mans because it had high top speed, mm-hmm. okay. which is what you look for. But my God, in those days, the track was hideously dangerous. The White House curve. Sure. Right. Um, were really something else. What was prior to your first Le Mans? I mean, you've been driving for all of 11 months, so you're an expert now. He's a yeah, Formula, Formula V. Formula <laughs> so Formula V, which maybe could top out at 110. Um, Downhill. Yeah, well, but the competition was there, and the reason I wanted to be in Formula V was, was to emulate Sterling Moss. Yeah, sure. So the Can-Am proceeded, and I was spending... My father's and my what I had inherited from my dad, mm-hmm. which um, was the, the the key thing to, I can say, talent was one part of it, but being rich enough to afford these things was right. quite another. Yeah, thing. for sure. But I did prove myself long before the money ran out. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Okay. I was always very careful with the money. I mean, I spent it, but I. Spent it in the right place, that turned out. Right. I mean, for example, my ride with Roger Penske in the Camaros mm-hmm. um, in the uh, summer of 1968 was um, a bought ride. I paid a couple of grand for each start. Mm-hmm. But there I was, dueling it out with Parnelli Jones and yeah. Mark Donahue and Peter Revson. You can't get that kind <laughs> of exposure. Right. By spending a whole lot more, you know. Right, right. Exactly. This, well, this and even, a, even if you have the money to afford the ride, you still have to have the talent to, yeah. to contend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep you, up. you have to. And uh, I was immediately just about as fast as Mark was. Wow. So that was, that was good. Mark Donahue. Yeah. yeah. Based on being in, in 1968, you've been in the sport for about two years. Yeah. And Mark Donahue was possibly one of the greatest sports car drivers of all time. Yeah. 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 To have him as, as a teammate was really something because... I'd start the race and I'd be right behind him, you yeah. know, yeah. Yeah. and I'd, I'd cling to that as long as I could. And then yeah. I just too exhausted and <laughs> blazed out, you know, <laughs> um, but I still had uh, three thirds and two seconds, you know, yeah. in, in yeah. that sense. So that was pretty good. Well, meantime, um, my team, which was called Autodynamics, was headed up by a guy called Ray Caldwell. And we shared... A, a love for engineering, and um, I designed the body. And I'm very proud of that. I got with uh, Eugene Larrabee, Dr. Eugene Larrabee uh, of MIT, <laughs> and uh, he, he coached me in the matter of uh, basic physics as they were related to automobiles. Right. And uh, we he built a, a wind tunnel to test our <laughs> various things. And it was about this long, and it had a hundred straws in it. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, and, yeah. But the damnedest thing is, looking back, 
we had a very solid aerodynamic package. Yeah. I'd say, I mean, you came from an art and architecture background. Right. If you're not an engineer, you have a concept for how to. Yeah. 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 And I know what not to do. Right. Sure. Not something else. So to that extent, you know, this era of time, you're coming in originally as a driver with funding. And so you're, you're, you're buying rides with Roger Penske and, and, and in today's sports car and IndyCar world and even NASCAR, you know, guys who bring funding, it's kind of an accepted part of the deal as long as they can blend in. Okay. Yeah. Um, how was it at that time? Like you're, you're teammates with Mark Donahue and you've been racing for less than a year or maybe two. Yeah. And uh, like, were people okay with that as long as you blended in? It was so accepted that it was never even a question of whether they they thought it was or it wasn't. I mean, it right. was just such a given thing. Yeah. Okay. And people didn't so talk numbers, you know. They just, right. um, I mean, they they could guess that Roger hadn't signed me up for for nothing, you know. Right, right, right. right. But the top rides were all um, very legit. Right, yeah, you had to back it up. Couldn't have been be bought. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. And then, for example, that car that I drove in uh, at Lime Rock in uh, the, the Trans Am of '69 um, yeah. um, for Carroll Shelby, there was no way that I had paid for that ride. People, you know, people realized I had actually been paid. And, right. Yeah. Um, the story was I won the race. You know, I started at the pole and won the race. Mm-hmm. The Auto Week had that story on top, and the Posey this, Posey that. Right. And I began to get used to that kind of thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, because I did talk well, and it was an enthusiast thing of mine um, to be able to do all these different things. I mean, I drove in '69. I think I drove five different cars, <laughs> and that was really great. And then the, the Ferrari came into the picture again in '69. Um, I, I was going to drive for Roger in a 24-hour race mm-hmm. in Daytona, um, the second one. And um, when I got down there, um, he looked a little bit uh, odd and said, well, I'm afraid we have somebody else to drive the car. And it turned out that um, Charlie Parsons had found his, a sponsor, mm-hmm. and they'd chosen Le Mans as their goal. I wandered down the pit lane. And here was a, a couple of Ferraris just sitting there with nobody in them. And uh, somebody introduced me to Dick Fritz, who was the team manager. And he said, uh, yeah, we, we, we need a couple of drivers. So what is your story? Yeah, the proverbial how much you got speech. You know? yeah. And we, um, we called Mr. Kennedy and explained that. So we, he had a couple of cars yeah. um, that were no driver had been named yet so he said well have him drive around a little bit so mm-hmm. I drove from the pit to the, the garage and that was it <laughs> and Dick Fritz came to me and said you did that very well <laughs> he's got the goods What's our... All right, we're signing you <laughs> so I'm uh, my debut with Canetti was um, a beige GTV with the radio and, and uh, electric windows. <laughs> and uh, But you can still have, you can make something out of something even if it isn't ideal. Right, right. And uh, I had a tire go on the banking and the car slid down near the guardrail and 
In those days, and I think it's true today, you can't have mechanical help. You can have verbal advice, but that you can't have your guy lay a hand on the mm. car. So I managed to get the thing jacked up and get the tire off and wheeled it back to the pits and they gave me a shovel and some other stuff, which I was allowed, or they looked the other way, I don't know. Um, but I, I changed the, the wheel and everything, and I think they always respected that, you know, oh, yeah. they, they thought. I mean, this was in the middle of the night, a hot night, yeah. uh, sand spurs everywhere, you know, and the lights up, uh, flashing by. Yeah. I mean, it would never have occurred to me not to, not to to walk away from a car that still had its engine running, you know? mm -hmm. right. and uh, so I think that counted a lot, because he then he, he they decided me for um, Lamar, and I went from being a sort of trio to being their number one driver. Right, right. Um, Just to give a little background on on NART North America Racing Team, which was Luigi Chinetti's team or Kennedy. Kennedy basically would be like a Rizzi of today, Rizzi Competizione, you know, a guy that owned a bunch of dealerships and sold a lot of Ferrari street cars and had a racing program, and you were largely a part of that, and that became a very famous program in North American road racing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it started with Mr. Kennedy's um, win in uh, 1950. I think it was the fastest, uh, the first win for Ferrari in a major race. Right. Mm. But um, back to racing in America, there were... We just couldn't afford the Can-Am anymore, and it was obvious that even if you had a bundle of money, you weren't going to beat them. You know? right. They were just so far ahead of everybody. So, you know, you, like like you said, with funding, you know, this started with sort of family funding. Was this mainly from your father's side or from your yeah, mother's side? Yeah, my father's what, side. What was the uh, family business? Um, well, uh, at first it was fire insurance. Okay. Oh, and going way back. Yeah. 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 When fires were much more common. Yeah. You remember those times, right? Yeah, right. How dare you? My mom was very careful with it. Right. Um, the money got bigger, and I got... Um, well, that's what I'm going to say. Is it's, it's, so if your mother was careful with it, at what point is it okay that you're going out playing race car driver? It was always okay. Really? How nervous she must have been. But right. She saw that this was something her son, at that point, her son loved mm -hmm. and was good at. Right. Uh, and contrasted with virtually everything else, right? I was terrible at it. It's <laughs> it's it's common for families with funding to sort of say, "You got three years to make it work," right. or "Here's my cap," this is all or we have. anything like that. Was there was there any of that kind of a no sort of Damocles? Uh, no, no, yeah. nothing. Wow, that's a supportive mom. Yeah, well, like I said, oh, oh, here's my incident with my mom. <laughs> we, um, John Fitch had a dealership. Uh, we went in one afternoon. And sitting there was a 300 SL Gullwing. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. streetcar. And I knew, because John Fitch had just finished fifth overall and first in class in the Mille Emilia mm -hmm. driving for Mercedes. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the guys at the dealership said, take it out, go up and down the road a little, see how you feel about it. So we went about 100 yards, so we were out of sight. And my mom said, you take over. Here. I, oh, nice. Okay. So yeah. now here I am at 14 years old. And, uh, a 300. And a 300, yeah. yeah. And this, which we buy on the spot for, yeah, for $2,500. Oh, man. Wow. That beat my hand-me-down Civic. Glory days. Yeah. <laughs> um, another 
And were you already a car racing person by this point? I mean, were you already into 14. it? Did, did mom already know that racing was a big part of what fascinated you? Oh, no question. She attended races. So. Oh, really? Yeah. At your behest? Oh, yeah. Okay. Even as a teenager? As a, as it, was just, it was just sort of assumed, you know. Okay. Do you remember what your first moment was that infatuated you with, with motorsports? The Le Mans crash was highly publicized. Oh, I can remember this moment. The, uh, the, the crash, the, the big one from 1955. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm embarrassed to reveal I, this seemed to make my SL more Appeal. of a serious car. Right. So just to understand the daredevil that is Sam Posey, you hear about this massive incident right. that's, you know, to this day, still the largest tragedy in motorsports. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Well, also like the car, he, his car yeah. is like, yeah, my car is culprits. pretty yeah. big deal here. Yeah. I realized for the first time that I could get killed doing it. Right. So, all right, now we're up to... Um, oh, yeah, we don't have to follow, like, an order, necessarily. Yeah, right. This is, this yeah. is just three guys talking. Well, if I don't go in order, I'll forget. What I'm Fair talking. enough. <laughs> <laughs> you do you. <laughs> in 1970, we did the Trans Am, big-time stuff, huge budgets, more than we could spend, almost. Right. And um, But at the end of the, of the season... The team was broken up by Chrysler, who wouldn't run the second year. I think we did really, really well for uh, competing against teams that had experience. The Trans Am of 70 was a great chance to you know, work with a real race team. We had Carol Smith as our chief engineer. Oh, the great Carol Smith. No slouch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very good guy. Very good guy. So what kind of just very basic question especially for thinking about our kind of audience who right. who you know most people from my generation or ryan's generation um you know are most familiar with sam posey the broadcaster but during the era of your driving you know uh 60s and 70s men were men kind of thing you have always been known for being particularly eloquent and and being able to give very elaborate speeches filled with <laughs> words and adjectives and grammar use that is far beyond most race car drivers I know <laughs> um, is was how were you the same way when you were driving and how was that received I think it was received just fine okay you were really valued on your results in those days right here I imagine it's still the case excuse me what you might call the subtle side of racing at that point um, it was a grand time in the grand sport yeah right um the one thing that was wrong with it was it was too way too dangerous. Yeah. And um, there are people who still believe that danger spikes the racing and makes it really, uh, and uh, which I think is just absurd and shows there are no feel for this sport at all. I mean, you started, there were cars that seat belts were an afterthought. You were soaking your suit in borax, I believe. Um, yeah. And at any point, were you, like, soaking a suit in borax and somebody was like, this gets rid of our heritage? <laughs> no one ever made that argument? No. <laughs> <laughs> Seatbelts? Yeah. Ugh. But the heritage says you burn. Like, no one ever said this. Peter Revson was a, a great guy, and I regret his death so much. Um, it, it, it was a thing that never should have happened. Yeah, so. But so so basically, I mean, Peter Revson had come from a family front with money, and uh, Revlon uh, is effectively his family money, and um, so he took a ride opportunity because he was finally able to be a pro 
right. you know, paid properly paid race car driver and a really well-paid race car driver. Um, and so you're of the belief that, that the decision to take that kind of car as opposed to something he might have been able to, uh, an alternative that he might have been able to pay for ultimately uh, became, became his undoing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, you, you've seen obviously no shortage of tragedy, but you've mentioned Peter Revson and also Mark Donahue. Um, did those kind of incidents change your perspective on driving at all? No, I don't think it did. Yeah. It's always the other guys who did the wrong thing and you got involved with it. Whether the car was misdesigned or badly prepared or something, okay. it, 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 drivers block that stuff out so effectively. Yeah. You know. Right. Uh, we haven't discussed Mark Donahue much on our show. Yeah. Um, you know, you came in with very little experience. You were instantly his teammate. Was he a guy that would welcome you? I think that to answer that requires a a way of looking at the sport that's different than you're looking at it. Um, you were suggesting that there's a sort of society there that would accept or um, criticize or not want to. I was still a, a rookie, basically. Right. I mean, would he take you under his wings and kind of give you observations, or was he very standoffish? We're talking about Mark. About Mark, yeah. yeah. He wouldn't help you at all. Really? Okay. Not a word. Was that because he was in his own world, or he just had no interest in helping somebody else? He was deathly afraid of somebody that he loses ride. Okay. Ah, so, so protecting so he, himself. This kid's here to take me. Yeah. Yeah. And there was Roger standing there going, like, hmm, this guy's pretty fast. Yeah. yeah. And he kept the pressure on Mark. Something terrible. He, um, he had no fence until the fence was far enough away, around the pool, far enough away that uh, you could bathe naked down there and nobody would notice or care. And there was something about Peter that was elegant that way. Um, and Mark... Uh, Mark was, of course, the engineer of the group, and he knew what was what to do to make it attack better in the car. So yeah, right. Um, no, that's the. I just feel that Peter would be doing the kind of thing I'm doing right now, which is talking about something we love. Yeah, and. Um, and getting a kick out of getting some of the stories and everything that are abundant. Yeah. So, so you talk a lot about sports car racing when you're talking about your history. Uh, almost everybody we speak to that has raced the Indy 500 talks about that predominantly and hasn't come up yet with you just off the cuff, which I find interesting. Well, it was kind of off the cuff for me, too. Um, yeah. Obviously, the lure of Indy. What was the uh, what was the first year that you showed up? I had an engine that was bought for me by Goodyear. Oh, cool. Um, it was very cool, and it was a, a time where Goodyear was making inroads, as it were, uh, and it, it really changing the face of the sport. Because so the next year I had a chassis too, and I put it in the wall during qualifying. <laughs> And, um, As you do. Yeah. It was one of those things. Well, you you go into into qualifying, and you yeah. go into turn three. You've got to be so damn precise because the weight distribution is going to change as you go in. Right. And you've got this enormous amount of 
fuel, which is burning down at a prodigious rate. So you've got to try to figure out what can you do to keep the fuel back there uh, somewhere. And, Coming uh, from road racing, you know, where the speeds aren't as huge. Right. Yeah, like right. it's, a, it's a different adjustment, I'm sure. Right. Yep. Arrow's way different. And Peter Revson um, told me, because he was there in the year before me, he said, look, Sam, you, you've got to realize that the, the race is really two events. One is up to 400 miles, and the other is the last 100 miles. He said, if you can get to that first checkpoint for yourself right. in good shape, you will pick them off like crazy, one at a time, one lap each. You yeah. know? And uh, because they're mostly old sprint car guys. Right. And they haven't run long races. Yeah, and, so every lap counts for them. Yeah. Right. right. And so with that in mind, I went back to my room and took a desk chair by the uh, uh, breaking brakes. Okay. Um, and oh, I, so you're working out. Yeah. Yeah. Like this, you know, so you're literally sitting there going through the motions of turning left and turning left and turning left. Yeah, not very sophisticated, room. but it, <laughs> just take that, Jim Leo. Right. You know, um, it fit my ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so, and, and again, coming coming as a endurance road racer, you know, the idea of just take care of the equipment, get it to a certain stage yeah. in the race, is, yeah. was part of your mindset. Yeah. And so you already had that versus yeah. some guy who'd been running Terre Haute his whole life yeah. and just yeah. knew, yeah, he yeah. had to get in the exactly. get to the A main. So, um, so yeah, so your first race, you drove really, really patiently then. I drove like a long distance race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? If somebody wanted to go by me, wave and by. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I got to the 400 mile mark, and there they were sitting like ducks in a row. Yeah. And I would have been third if I'd had just half a lap more. I was right there on these two guys. And that's how we know you were pro. Yeah, true racer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eventually, the transition went from driving to broadcasting. Yeah. Um, that overlapped a little bit. Yeah, yeah right. but it, but it sounds like you were maybe at a point where, you know, you were seeing friends get hurt and and only wanted to be in the best equipment you could be, that maybe it was time to start focusing on something like broadcasting where your ability to speak really well was, was a strength. Yeah, I loved the ABC from the very beginning. I mean, Jackie Stewart, was they had him down on a schedule to do both Indy and Monaco the same uh-huh. day. Okay. And, uh, and do you remember what year this was? 80. Okay, so this oh, was yeah. 1980, right? Yep. So, yeah, so... Jackie is supposed to do Monaco and Andy. Yeah, and he had it all worked out with helicopters and. Because uh, this was the same weekend. Yeah, yeah, same yeah. day. Yeah, right. And so, uh, it's about two weeks before the race. Okay. Okay. And Jackie's decided instead of Monaco, he's going to go to Indy. No, instead of Indy, he's going to go to Monaco. Okay, so he's going to. He, he had the choice. It's right. just too much work yeah, to have can't. to jump between two continents One within, within a 12-hour period. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. it almost couldn't be done. Right. Oh, I wanted to do it desperately. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because I, I, I can see that it, I, that's the way you beat the other drivers is you're in the booth. 
uh, and no one can say, say that there's more prestige, Shani, there than somebody wearing that ABC blazer. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. Okay, so because yeah. you're shows about you now. You're now the voice of of the broadcast, so you can whatever somebody <clears throat> does, you can always say on the air what they did was right or wrong. So you have the most control. Yeah, and you're, yeah. you're on every. You're in every scene. Yeah, you're in every. You're pass. part of every. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so your personality starts to rub off. And, mm-hmm. Okay, so this could be the final dig at all those guys you've been racing with. Uh, it 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 helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if, if it was Rick Mears, let's say. Yeah. Um, Total asshole, right? No, 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 no. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful man. Yeah. Um, but you, I would have been intimidated by Rick Mears. I wouldn't have thought to go to the Penske truck and see what was going on inside. Right. right. I was just a shy guy. You yeah, know, right. And, uh, but with, but you know, now that you're now that you got the jacket, you can do it. Exactly. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. And, well, it was really what neat because. Um, they picked me up on um, Thursday, I know, Saturday afternoon, right. and took me to the nearest Dairy Queen. And, uh, <laughs> Fancy. Cause, we can um, hang out more. Yeah. 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 So um, then I went out to the track. You know, I was up there in the booth with Jim McKay trying out. And qualifying it was the last minutes of qualifying. Okay. And, and this is your first time in the booth. Yeah. Okay, so but I've been like sitting there. Yeah. I've been sitting there next to him for a while. Okay. Know, so it wasn't walking out sure, the street sure. to do it. And um, he he was going on, and I thought, I thought I'm not going to get my chance. And then he <laughs> turned to me and he said, "Sam, what do you think?" And I I could see that Tom Sneva was going to come out, and I said, it's "Tom Sneva, Jim, next run." He's a school teacher from. Oregon and blah blah blah. I identify the guy. Right. I say a thing or two about him and shut up. Oh. And then McKay's kind of from there. So that's how I got the job. Right. You know, we know you as obviously the the broadcasters throughout the eighties and the nineties. Um, you won an Emmy for the Iditarod. Is that correct? No, it's a you submit a, a collage of things. Okay. okay. So, so there was a little indie in there, and there was a lot of uh, the. Uh, the Antarctic expedition. Okay, great. So one, one thing we wanted to ask about, because he was a big part of our show when we had him on, is Bobby Unser. How much of a pain in the ass for you was Bobby Unser? Bobby and I were close friends. Yeah. Completely misunderstood by everybody, huh. including yeah. Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thankfully, you said Perfect. that part. Yeah. Perfect. Um, he was, uh, of course, a great racing driver. Yeah. and. That meant that the chemistry in the booth was, was different because I had been the only driver and therefore the, the only authority on what was sure. going on. And suddenly Bobby was there and with a very different view of what, um, what a race should have. And, and knowing Bobby the way we feel we do, yeah. um, he obviously had such a resume that I'm sure he came in thinking he knew way more than you did. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He, he, when he tried to imitate me in some way he, he was just <laughs> helpless i mean <laughs> i i got to it was so painful when he was on the cameras at the openings right i'd write his thing out and, or, <laughs> wait so you would write his opens yeah nice <laughs> i can like yeah. it yeah. makes sense <laughs> bobby's way of articulating things is very different from yours uh he's lovely yeah. Well, except when it came down to the short strokes, we were very similar. You know? Really? Okay. Uh, in our approach to things. I okay. Mean, we both 
loved the sport. Mm-hmm. We both had a reputation to defend. Yeah. And uh, his obviously much greater than mine. But when you're in television, you're way up at the, uh, in the pecking order. Yeah, right. Um, and he, uh, he just, we, we, Paul Page and I did funny things with him, you know, like, you know how <laughs> right. those chairs yeah. have that uh, hydraulic thing and it sinks yeah. down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we lift. saw him come in and we timed it exactly and both of our chairs went down. Even <laughs> <laughs> while he was looking really perplexed. You know, it took him quite a while to figure it out. That's awesome. And, uh, no, we'd have dinner together and uh, yeah. do stuff. It was, uh, I wrote a very complimentary thing for uh, 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 Amelia Island. Uh, oh, okay. The concourse, and um, he was so uh, polite about it. And he, he's one of the few people to have visited our house from the racing world and write a, a thank you note. Oh, oh, that's very nice. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just have the world for Bobby. So, and a lot of the, the rudeness and everything, he had his reputation uh-huh. and his followers and. Bobby was learning fast that there was more to the sport than he thought, right. or more to the commentary than he thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was very proud that being a big part of that. For sure. And he, so he was basically playing his character on screen, is what you're saying? Yes. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you, you know, when, when we watch old clips on YouTube before we came here of, of, you know, you and Bobby interacting, it seems like most of the YouTube highlights are Bobby correcting you, going, well, you're wrong, Sam, and it's this way, and no, Sam, it's this. Right. Did, yeah. did you ever actually get mad when he would stop you? No, never did. Really? Never, I don't get mad. <laughs> One thing, it's very rare. It never happened in the booth. Okay. Yeah. Do you ever try to dig him back? Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> definitely. It wouldn't have been any fun if we didn't have a David sure. Hobbs right. relationship. Okay. I, I saw that a mile away and <laughs> tried to get it. But his birthday was um, during the qualifying weekend, I think. And we had just, the company had been bought out by ESPN. ESPN yeah, right. Right. yeah. ABC. Or maybe Fox. But, um, uh, Disney had probably purchased them. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a new austerity program. Uh, immediately in place. Uh, I mean, we were supposed to cancel our first-class tickets. And, oh, you know, interesting. We yeah. had to show that we weren't wasting money. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Nice to meet you guys. Yeah, yeah, you taking off? And I'm taking off. Okay. get these pieces over to the mill and the what? get to Home Depot. You're going to the mill? The, we own a mill. We're the oh, largest no. collaborative mural in the world. Okay. It's going up. Over 10,000 kids have worked on it. It's what? Oh, I read about this. Kids actually. are going to the mill? Okay. And you just walk into my studio, you'll see a couple pieces that remain. The so, River Rouge, which is where they make Mustangs now. But, so we just want to we just want to uh, confirm that Sam Posey is sending a bunch of kids to the mill. <laughs> there's a joke that there's an inside joke that's been going on yeah. for years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It is yeah. confirmed. <laughs> it is confirmed. Damn. Say that. Um, Hard bargain. That is cool. Um, when we sat down with Bobby a few months ago, he he was pretty adamant that a lot of the, sort of the on-air confrontations you guys had was pretty real. Um, and you're sort of of the opinion that even him saying that now is still part of the character. Of yeah, Bobby. I think right. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Particularly now because um, there's nobody that really cares that much, um, or as much to have as part of the changing sure. of the guard. Sure. Yeah, yeah. One thing I will say is we look around your studio here. There's mm-hmm. some really great art pieces, some really great models. 
I don't see any Sam Posey, I love me kind of right. items. Like there's right. no giant posters or trophies or anything. There's one little IMSA plaque, but that's actually a, a, that's a, that's a proper thing. to put Well, in. also I'm going to guess you got that this weekend. Yeah. Is that no, Yeah. <laughs> when was the last time you were in Bobby's house? Oh, it was at, um, at the Amelia Island thing a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah. Were you in his home? Have you been to his home? Uh, no, I've been to okay. Al's home. Yeah. We were we were just in Bobby's home <laughs> a few weeks ago, and you can't step three feet without running into some Bobby poster or trophy or anything. Like his entire house is an <laughs> homage to him, um, which could not be a starker contrast to to how you seem to have your home set up, or at least your art studio. Well, this is like having um, five Emmys because it's just everything is so great here. You know? right. Yeah, no, right. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> how much time do you spend in your art studio? I get down here at eight in the morning and leave at eight at night. Wow. Twelve hours. So you're regimented. Like this is you are hours going to stay here. Yeah. I mean, is this going to work for you? No, it isn't. I, I, I was supposed to not run because of these various physical problems. Okay. But I run down the hill, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it really feels good. So most of the artwork that I'm looking at kind of I would say borders on sort of the abstract and there's a few landscape paintings. What would you say is your general is there such a thing as a style for you? I've been pursuing two goals okay. for some months now, and uh, one has to do with the space, uh, an illusion of space uh, with rods on the surface, and then a sort of landscapey abstraction behind them. Okay, and you feel it, so it's somewhere between landscape and abstract. Yeah, but yeah. but the, the the most important thing is um is the space that this illusion of space that is created by this yeah when we look at some of these pieces on the wall i can see what you're describing where basically you you kind of go a direction and then you kind of yeah go opposite with a different thing to sort of show mm -hmm. various contrasts and and various right. sort of impacts of light which would go with sort of the theme of how you've got your studio set up so that makes sense to me yeah this is the main direction of your work over the years okay yeah. and then these are the little uh, digressions into right. um, other forms of, of the, uh, other ways to do it right and uh, i really like that about it but it's and uh, you were doing this kind of work before you were even driving right uh yes yes yeah. Yeah, so this has been part of your life life's always yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean i was a kid in school that um in, in yeah. sixth grade or something that realized when you paint a, a landscape outside you have to put the whole sky in everybody else was just putting a single line Ah, all right. So yeah. that right away, I was a big hero in the art world. <laughs> <laughs> I've made it. Take that, other twelve-year-old. So it's like racing in art. Yeah, two years in, still competitive. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So when you um, when you do this kind of work, what is there a motive? Like, are you looking to sell these? Is this just what you want to be working on? Is there what's the sort of the art motive? Well, <clears throat> it, it starts the book start about. Um, when I was 20 or, or younger than that. Uh, uh. And um, I've just painted ever since, and um, I collected the books, uh, for, for the books because my secretary is very great at layouts, and um, I wanted to uh, have a record of that I could carry around. You know? Right. If you ask a question about art, I can show you this, and, and you'll, hopefully you'll understand what I'm up to. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's quite a variety. The same thing with the buildings. Yeah, the nudes. Um, <laughs> I did uh, not see that going this way today. <laughs> I'm happy that it did, though. But go on. Here's your nudes book. 
Oh, good. I'll take mine. All right, look at this one. The nudes have been a great thing for me. I've really, the forms of a, of a girl's body is just, it's endlessly fascinating to me. I agree. You, you sit in one place, you move an inch, and you change the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, not quite an inch, but you get the idea. And I don't know, when I'm making something like this, like this, it just feels right to me. You know? It's an exciting image when it's finished. And just making something like that is a source of great pride. It's not easy to do I'm that. I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, it's quite an elaborate book. And now the battleships. I became fascinated with doing battleships. These are big paintings, five by four, four by five. Yeah. So your actual degree is in, I want to say, architecture and design, is that right? No, it's just painting. Just painting. That's your actual degree. Okay. I got interested in architecture because my roommate was uh, uh, taking architecture, and he was a lazy son of a bitch, and I did a lot of work for him. <laughs> interesting. I say most, I, 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 most architecture students I know actually are the opposite. I was say, this guy going to racing? Yeah. <laughs> so from, from an architecture standpoint, you, you said you were responsible for... Upwards of 50 buildings around here? Yeah. yeah. Um, including uh, Lime Rock? Yeah, all of the buildings at Lime Rock. All the Lime oh, Rock. That's, oh, that's okay. excellent. That's really cool. And it, are most of the buildings like around this area? Oh, yeah, well, yeah. mostly. But I have two buildings in Hawaii, one in uh, Oregon. Cool. Uh, several in Florida. Okay. And then Lime Rock. Uh, yeah. New York. Yeah. Sure. That's cool. Is there, is there a signature style to you? Like, do we know it's a Sam Posey building if it's... No, it, no you wouldn't see You wouldn't find it. Okay. So, but this is interesting. You wouldn't find this either. But, but these represent phases. I mean, I was doing nudes, uh, and, and, uh, and nudes and battleships for quite a while. And, uh, it was, At the same time? See, okay, so, you, so there's two things you love. It's battleships and the female form. Yeah. My boy, <laughs> we're gonna get along. Get a little Civil War action yeah. in there, and yeah, Sean's get some Civil Wars and some dogs with little legs. What I love is they're so different. You know, you've got the soft uh, feeling of the girl, and then there's an incredibly hard feeling of the battleships. Yeah. yeah, this one I love is uh, of the um, Yamato. Oh, okay. So yeah, so your your battleship paintings are they all based on real ships or are any yes, yes, okay, no, so, they're real ships. Okay, because yeah. like yeah, that's a that's a, a Japanese destroyer that you were showing me there. Yeah, but in terms of uh, sort of the the motivation behind it, do you sell these or are these sort of part of a collection? Do you get commissioned? Both. Okay. I have a gallery show every year in September. Okay. That sells a few things. Yeah. And then I receive commissions. And okay, so you will do th something commissioned. Yeah. Oh, cool. And and the other thing that you're known for is like you wrote a book uh, on model trains, and it seems like that's another huge fascination of yours. Yeah. Um, where did that come from? I think it came from the very beginning. Of, I had the traditional uh, the, the sort of boyhood fascination that we all tree, have at some point. Trees going around a tree. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next thing is it had to have a little straightaway, so. <laughs> <laughs> And it just grew and grew and grew, and uh, yeah. you know, very lucky there, too. It came out very well. It's been on the cover of Model Railroad twice. Nice. And uh, it was I sort of swooped into the, the, the very densely populated world of Model Railroad and, yeah. and carried off the big prize, you know. Wow. 
Um, so that was, you know, gave me a lot of satisfaction. So do you still have any, like, is there something in your home? Oh, like, it's right up at the house. Oh, how cool is oh, that? Yeah. Okay. That's neat. It's not portable. It's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 60 feet long. Where, so where, like the best model train setup I've seen so far was at the, uh, 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 the, the museum, the science and industry museum in Chicago. Um, that's got a really, really nice one. Where would you say is the best model train setup? Outside of my own. Outside of your own. Right, of course. Uh, like a true racer. I, I think that the, my friends at Model Railroad are having the, Probably the best. Dave Ferry is maybe the best of all. Okay. Um, they all we all imitate John Allen, who was this ah, like the badass of he was the legendary figure. You know. Yeah. Everything we do is was done first by him. Okay, <laughs> I see. So I think one of the things you're most known for currently is your openings to several big sporting events, such as Le Mans, Formula One season openers, and things like that. Would you agree? I'm not sure of the question. The, so the, the television opening. So like you can't start a big race, the oh. 24 hours of Le Mans or a F1 season finale without that amazing Sam Posey introduction, okay. you know, with the, with the strong writing and your, your you know, uh, amazing voice. To us, that's almost like one of your, your biggest legacies. Is right. that something you're proud of? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I've developed the last few years into a real maven of uh, – uh, a type of writing that works for the teases and the yeah, openings. Right. And I've been so into that and so into using words that have a, a kind of sibilance that goes with, with the shapes of the locomotives and the, the hum of the electric motors. And it's pretty neat. So from the procedural standpoint, so like Ernest Hemingway allegedly used to spend all day writing and his goal at the end of every day was narrow it down to a page. And that yeah. was his process. What, what was the Sam Posey process? Is this? That's like, it's like that. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. So it's not yeah. something you just dole out in five minutes while you're waiting for a sandwich. It's no, like, no. It absolutely was the top of the line while I was doing it. Okay. And Jim McKay retired or backed away so far. And I inherited all of his shows. Oh, okay. Which was pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Do you mind just talking about uh, Parkinson's at all? Oh, Parkinson's. Um, do you, I mean, do you mind just asking questions about it? Oh, no, no, no. Of course okay. not. Uh, sure. well, I yeah, just want to make sure. Uh, I've had Parkinson's for 50 years, and uh, that's remarkable. Most people are caved in long before that, and it has nothing to do with my sterling character or anything, <laughs> although I do have a sterling character. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it... Um, it's a bummer, but it's surprising how many little uh, Yeah. So you said you were diagnosed 15 years ago? 55 or. You were diagnosed with Parkinson's five, 50 years ago? Yeah. Um, and so, wow, I mean, 50 years ago, that would have been uh, 1969. Right. Um, <laughs> what was there, uh, how much was known about it then? Not, not as much as now. Sure. And um, As of the moment, Symptoms have grown tougher and tougher. Yeah, right. Um, the medication has sort of kept, kept. You know, I mean, when I first got it, it was a completely misunderstood disease. So, from the first diagnosis, was there a you know, in five years this is going to happen, or in ten years it's going to be like this? Had was there any sense of how to create a timeline? Yes, I kept asking and. They said the one thing you got to learn about this disease is you can't predict anything. Oh, really? Great. Okay. Thanks for the help. Yeah. yeah. 
what uh what does that do for your racing career at the time because you did you think like this is going to end up being the reason i can't continue or did you just take it as it came um i don't i didn't catch the first part when you were diagnosed with parkinson's and you already had a love for racing is it something that you figured could affect your career oh i didn't have enough of a career going at that so it didn't matter (laughs) yeah um what what led to the diagnosis like was were you noticing something about yourself that you were struggling with or was it just part of a routine series of tests i had a I had a wrist thing wrist vibrated oh interesting hmm. um, I, I went to the encyclopedia and got it figured out so your your wrist was kind of fidgeting a little bit yeah and you you just didn't know what was wrong yeah wow um and then I, I went to the local uh, uh, Parkinson's guy and uh, said, what, what can I do? And he said, oh, I'm going to give you a number of the best Parkinson's doctor in the States, if not everywhere, mostly everywhere. Right. So I went down and, um, to New York and met Dr. Fawn. And Dr. Fawn was impressive as hell. And so I... Um, Felt that I didn't have to worry about um, whether I was getting the best possible care. I knew I was, so right. I could put that right out of my mind. I just do what he suggests. Right. And uh, he turned out to be a wonderful guy, and we've had a lot of good things. Yeah. How has it evolved over the years, just between sort of understanding and medication? A lot. Yeah. But everybody's different. You know? Sure. And obviously I've had a very light case of it, and I pursued it diligently, but there are a lot of people that have heavy cases. And, right. Yeah. And you said there's a lot of things you have to work at. What are, what are some of the big things you have to do? Well, I think general exercise is, is important. Sure, yeah. I have this machine you can see over in the corner, yeah. you know, which has pedals. And, yeah, uh, like a, kind of like a stationary bike you sit on. All right, so we do a pass-along question every episode. And uh, our last guest we had was Boris Said. And his question was, what is your favorite car that you've driven on the street? That's, that's a good question. Do you want to hear mine? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think my SL. Yeah, the Mercedes. Uh, the SL that started it all? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that only makes sense. Yeah. But uh, day to day, I'd probably take the Corvette. Oh, oh, okay. Interesting. It's, yeah. it's okay. exceptionally fine. I think it's a very beautiful car. And what uh, What year is it? I don't know. Six. Uh, I think it's it maybe ten years old. Oh, okay, sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, C five or something. C six. Yeah, yeah. yeah the car awesome. is immaculate. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What do you think of Corvette going to a mid-engine car? Oh, I think they've always been on the leading edge of things, and it's beginning to look like the. Front engine things are looking like elephants out there. Sure. So tonight we're going to be having dinner with your friend Skip Barber. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. Do you have a pass along question for Skip Barber? Anything uh, we could use as a joke to rib him on? Ask him about the time that at Mossport that he raced Jim Clark. Okay. Oh, perfect. Okay. Well, I mean, racing Jim Clark's pretty. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So we have an idea. Um, you don't have to do it if you don't like. But we thought when we introduce your episode, 
that uh, I, I did a terrible job of it. I tried to write a Sam Posey introduction to this episode. Oh, great. That's great. Um, so do you want to try and read it and see what you think? Oh, I see. I'm going to read it. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to write it, but I, from <laughs> no, what no, I understand, no, it takes you days. Me, so. <laughs> um, all right. So in the, uh, we, we tried to write this in your voice. That's, that's good. Uh, if, so uh, out of 10, this, this, my, this is going to measure our careers here. Out of 10, where would you rate this as a Sam Posey writing? Oh, it's a good, it's good, it's good. We are in. Oh, right. Um, I think I'd, I think I'd try to say anything's clear, heralding a fan following that, a fan following that. So you're saying club. this is too wordy for Sam Posey? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you idiots <laughs> made it too hard. You've suggested some names, and now you're going further. Is that going to be um, more so, of the same? Yeah, or, so, yeah, uh, so these, are, these are names we recorded with. We're getting notes. Let but, go. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a journey from Metropolis to Farmingtown. It's very good. Yes. Desert to mountains is very good, and, yes. including cities like Winslow, Oklahoma, and, and of course, Bedford. And all those stories are are significant to us. Yeah, it's, that's that's referencing the show. Yeah, it's meant to be a joke. See, I think this develops nicely. Um, it's a very good start. A salad, a bowl <laughs> it's a of good soup, start. Okay, a yeah. calorie measure. You kids keep at it. Yeah. So the Sam Posey School of Journalism. Yeah. We've got a passing grade. Yeah. Yeah. Are you calling this a B, B plus? I'm I'm not, I'm not confident. <laughs> I was like, I've never got uh, a We have a pass fail system. Here. Okay, okay. So <laughs> we. And this one passed. We got a P. All right. All right. There. Hey, I didn't pass a lot yeah, of grades. Don't so. ask for too much, kids. Yeah, all right. Settle down. Yeah, this is awkward. Um, <laughs> keep going. See, I think this is very good line, but for two idiots who choose. You know. <laughs> So the one where we call ourselves idiots, that one, that's well, the big it's accurate. Yeah. It's, it's on point. I understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, this I got. This I got right away. It would be nice if this, this tied together better. It's a journey from Metropolis <laughs> to Falling Town. All right, Sam Posey. I understand. Now, what you'd want is parallel construction after I don't know what that farm, means. Farming, farming okay. Town. Google parallel construction. You know the difference between extraordinary and ordinary? It's that little bit of extra. It's that little bit extra. It makes all the difference. It's my guy. That's awesome. See, what I like about this is it sets the scene and then puts you in there deeper. You know? Perfect. And then yeah. we have like a legendary voice to do it. Yeah, and then we have like the voice of all voices to introduce it. We've grabbed him. We've grabbed him. Cool. That was right. fun. Yeah, thank you. That was that yeah, was man, excellent. Did great. Our dream was that you would criticize it. Yeah, and you did. That all worked out really well. <laughs> well, the whole thing is you have to look at uh, the the feeling of the thing. What yeah. what is the mood? And mm -hmm. I think you've set the mood. Oh, I like I like sure. the, you know okay. it's, it's the soup, the salad. So, um, you know, you you just heard about us uh, not too long ago, and you didn't really know anything about what we were doing before we showed up. Um, for our fans who are somewhat younger and somewhat new to uh, you know some of the history of the sport, what what would you want the Sam Posey legacy to be? I would avoid the word Renaissance. I've been described as a Renaissance. Oh, man. you hate that. 
Interesting. I, it's, it's yeah, that's all. Like half the websites that we read articles about you yeah. are Renaissance man this and Renaissance yeah, man that. Yeah. You don't like that. I I think I've read about Renaissance men. Yeah, and I and I don't want to be compared to them. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, um, Leonardo da Vinci um, counted the the strokes of a wing on a bird. Right. And realize that one wing flaps more than the other one. Okay. I mean, that's amazing. Right. And well, you're saying you're not at that level. Yeah, I'm certainly not at that level. Okay. <laughs> All right. He, Leonardo da Vinci built a lot of things there, came up with a lot of things that didn't work. Sure. Oh, yeah. But he yeah. came up with a lot that did work. Fair. Mark Donahue said that we go testing and we have 10 things and we're lucky if we come home with three. And, okay. and it doesn't it's mayhem and, and if you don't try these things you're never going to get anywhere so, you, you have to go with that uh, fear of failure is is not a healthy thing right yeah. so the uh, so we know your legacy is not to be called a renaissance man <laughs> uh, what, what would you want like what do you want people to take away from when they listen to this well I never thought of that I never had that luxury yeah <laughs> That's a fair answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was awesome. Great. Awesome. Well, who's got that was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Us too. Continental's got the sandwiches. Well, the check. Well, the check. We paid for them. Yeah. With the check. And thanks again to Mr. Sam Posey and the uh, folks who work with him, who were all more than happy to accommodate and make this all happen. Uh, also, uh, John Alessandro, Ray Yakhtar, and Tim Shinoski, who all recommended we uh, sit down with them. Hopefully this was what you were looking for. And we will close out with a song called Escalation by Sita. This is on uh, musicbed.com. This is a new phase.